Well, this morning we return to our great collection of songs, probably the greatest collection of songs ever given to man, greater than Handel's Messiah, greater than the compilation of music in Mozart's first or Brahms' fourth or Beethoven's fifth or any other musical gift given to man. I say that because this morning we return to our study in the book of Psalms. And today our study comes to what I think is the greatest psalm, if not one of the greatest psalms in the history of the church, especially in regard to the believer and repentance. The believer and repentance. We come to what one theologian calls David's blackest moment of self-knowledge. And of course, I'm referring to Psalm 51. So if you have your Bibles, open them. To Psalm 51, as we begin to look at, again, one of the most famous psalms that David ever penned in the Psalter, Psalm 51. Let me read it out loud, and you can listen as I read. For the choir director, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the abundance of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and pure when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you delight in truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. By your favor, do good to Zion, build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the righteous sacrifices, in burnt offerings and the whole burnt offering. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar. It was the great preacher, Charles Spurgeon, in his classic commentary on the Psalms called The Treasury of David, who speaks of Psalm 51 in this way. He says, it is a burning bush with fire yet not consumed, and out of it a voice seemed to cry to me, draw not nigh hither, put off thy shoes from thy feet. 
The psalm is very human. Its cries and sobs are of one born of woman. But it is frayed with inspiration, all divine, as if the great father were putting words into the child's mouth. Such a psalm may be swept over, absorbed into the soul, and exhaled again in devotion. But comment on it? Ah, there is he who, having attempted it, can do anything other than blush at his defeat. End quote. In other words, the preacher who attempts to do this is one who knows that his defeat is certain <laughs> in trying to explain the wonders of this, such as the nature of expositing the Word of God. And we say that because when you explore or at least attempt to explore the depths of such human agony in the church, when you attempt to put before comments on exactly what this ancient document is trying to tell us and saying and why that it's so important for us to grasp these truths as a people, it forces us to peel back some very tender wounds within us in the hope that maybe others too might be able to hear these words and prevent them from going down the exact same path and suffering from these exact same injuries. And that is exactly my intention for all of you this morning. Now, if you were with us last Lord's Day, then you know that as I finished our glimpse of Psalm 32, I told you that there was an intimate connection between this psalm and Psalm 51. Excuse me, Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. It's a very intimate connection in that the Psalm 32 is considered to be, at least by most theologians, the culmination of the lessons that were taught to King David after he went through this horrific experience that he suffered as a result of his adultery with Bathsheba. In other words, while Psalm 32 gives us the lessons that David learned after he confessed his sins concerning all the things that he had done, it was Psalm 51, the psalm that is before us today, that chronicles that emotional journey of his heart being crushed by God and by the understanding of the repercussions of sin that leads him toward repentance. But first comes Psalm 51 in this immediate reaction the immediate reaction of David to being found out for his sin. And then comes Psalm 32 as a reflection of what he learned in that experience. And so in the providence of God, we started in Psalm 32 for the last two Lord's Days in a row. But now we're going to go back in time to Psalm 51, kind of like a divine flashback, if you will, of the tragedy that happened in his life. So though the chronology of this event is retroactive, it's my hope that this journey for us as a people of God and this study will be proactive. And what I mean by that is that this study will help us grasp the height and depth and breadth of the consequences of sin, because sin has consequences in the hope that none of us will ever have to go the hard way that David went and in the way he traveled. Now, to get a handle on what it is that's going on with David's life here and what's happened so far, we have to go back. We have to go way back into his life, back to a time described here in the superscription of Psalm 51, uh, back to a time when David, as it says, superscriptions being inspired, by the way, that David had gone into Bathsheba. 
Of course, that is the biblical way of describing sexual knowing of her. So this is what sets the stage for this entire psalm. But I want you to notice that the statement in the superscription is not meant to be a literal time-elapsed notion of history, but rather it's a reminder of that entire event, what happened during that entire period of his life. To say it in a different way, David did not write this psalm after his initial time with Bathsheba. His initial adultery with Bathsheba didn't happen, and then he wrote this psalm. No, it wasn't after the second or the third or any of the following times that he had been with her, because if that had been the case, then perhaps the level of the consequence of the burden of his sin might have been less intense and been mitigated away in some fashion. No, David didn't write this psalm after his initial adultery. The superscription here is just reminding us of the general theme of that particular time in his life, the the theme of betrayal and lust and murder and deceit. All of that happened after that fatal, fateful night. So we need to go back. We need to go back into that period of his life, into that time. We need to travel back to the moment of David's erosion. We need to think through what it was that was happening to the moment that he transitioned from being a king of such nobility and such valor to this moment that he allowed himself to be undone, where he allowed himself this slow and indescribably sad descent into sin and to despair. Now, if you were with us last time, it might be helpful because we try to spend the entire time to capture the essence of what was happening as we explored Psalm 32. But just for our purposes this morning, what I want to do is, and I think it's going to be good for us to do it, I want to diagnose the whole situation again for you because it's going to catch us up to speed because they are relevant, this situation, to both Psalms. So let's go back. Let's go back to the circumstances that create the backdrop here for this study which means we need to leave the book of Psalm 51 and now go back to 2 Samuel to look at just the last few chapters, verses really, of 2 Samuel chapter 11. I'm going to start in a reference with 2 Samuel 10, but I want you just to go back to get a sense of what it is that is happening. Again, we are grammatical, historical, contextual studies of the Word of God. Context means everything. And to get a proper feel of the magnitude of what's happened here in David's life, again, we go back. Now, what we didn't cover last time, as we're doing a little bit of a review here, is that at the time that 2 Samuel was written, specifically chapter 11, chapter 10 tells us that Israel was in a battle against Ammon. According to 2 Samuel 8, you don't have to go there, Uh, We learn of this campaign, but it's here in 2 Samuel 10 that we learn of a specific battle. It gets a lot more of an expanded kind of treatment here as to what exactly happened because it was a very fierce trial. It was a very fierce battle, and it was one where Israel met almost with complete disaster. The Armenians were determined to avenge the earlier defeat at the hands of Israel, and so the king of the foreign oppressors assembled troops from several different city-states that they had to the northeast border of Israel. But in response to that act, important that you know, King David 
the mighty King David mobilized an army, crossed the Jordan, and historians say probably surprised the enemy with his rapid mobilization and deployment of troops in the battle, so much so that the enemy fled before Israel. So, in fact, according to 2 Samuel 10, 18, David's forces killed 700 chariots, 400,000 horsemen. The field commander of Ammon, General Shobach, also lost his life in the battle. This was an incredible victory. All that to say, as you think about David, David was feeling invincible. David was feeling like he was the man. David was confident the blood of his enemy was spilt and the king defended his people. And so 2 Samuel chapter 11 tells us out of this that David, reaping the benefits of such victory for whatever reason, decided to stay at home when everybody else went out to fight battles in the spring. Now, may I be so bold as you start to think about the implications of this that confidence in yourself can be a very dangerous thing. True, David was an extremely able man. True, very few people would be able to even compare to David. David was exceptional. He was exceptional in strength. He was exceptional in, in ability. He was exceptional in his looks. He was a very dangerous man to other people, but he was also a very dangerous man to himself. Now, most people might not have to deal with overconfidence. I understand that. So to hear words of he was too confident, he was too full of himself, doesn't have any glue to kind of stick our thoughts to. But the principle here is this, and this is vital that you remember this, and you know this, pride comes before the Paul. (laughs) Pride, Pride comes before the fall, Paul said it. Pride comes before the Paul. That's hilarious. I've never, I've never said that before. And, and, and pride happens to be when you think you know what you're saying, and then you say something completely different. I got to start over. So, no, but, but pride, you get the gist of it. I'm a living manifestation of it. Uh, pride comes before one falls. Again, what's the implication behind that? that pride doesn't always manifest in the way you might think. Uh, Pride sometimes manifests in ways before you fall, in ways that destroy you before you're even aware of it. So my my plea with you is you have to monitor monitor your heart every day because your resistance to sin and temptation can come. Not just when you're confident, which is probably not a lot of us, but when you're depressed And when you feel like you deserve more than what God has given you, and you feel like you're running into a a brick wall with your life, sin and temptation can come then when you are on top of the world, as well as when you believe God owes you more than what he's given you. And I say this because I continually think of Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9, that says, give me neither poverty nor riches. That's an interesting statement. But feed me with the food that is my portion, lest I be full and deny thee and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. So what's he saying there? Both temptations affect God. Check this out. If I have more than what I need, or if I have less than what I need, I need either way, and I sin against God either way. 
Either way, I take what I want because my mind, I'm justified to do that. Because in my mind, I need it, so I take it, or I don't have it, or I have so much of it that I ignore him, so I take it without even thinking. But all of it is sin. Whether you're starving or whether you're full, you've got to watch your heart. Why do I bring that up? Because here, David's belly's full. David's belly is so full to the brim with praise and accolades and fearlessness and notoriety. David is full and fat. And at this point in his life, a rock star. He is a rock star to his people and he's a rock star to himself. And that's at the time when he first saw Bathsheba. And that's what it says in 2 Samuel 11 too. Now, when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful in appearance. It's very important that we look at these words because even though I want to not necessarily dive into the details here, but just suffice it to say, David was already in bed in the evening. And for some unrecorded reason that we don't have here, that the scriptures don't tell us, he arose from his bed to walk around to see what he might see. And before you can even read the rest of the statement, if you're like me already, you should know something is very wrong happening. Something very fishy is about to take place. You can tell yourself all that you want that you're just getting a breath of fresh air. You can tell yourself all that you want. My, what a, what a beautiful evening it is tonight. And, and what a pleasant, warm wind it is that's flowing through here. I'm just going to see if I can see what's going on outside. And all the while, in your heart of hearts, you know that you're looking for trouble. All the while, you know in your heart of hearts, deep down inside, that something is rotten in Denmark. Something ugly inside of me is looking for something ugly outside of me. Because the heart is a restless ocean that ebbs and flows in ways that are very hard to explain. But you can be aware of this restlessness and fight it. Remember what I said when we first started that one theologian said this is David's blackest moment of self-knowledge. His blackest moment of self-knowledge. He is going to learn who he really is. You, you can know your heart's blackness before it turns on you, but you have to be so self-aware that such a monster exists within you that you are most vulnerable when you're hungry and full. You have to know that when you're just going out on the patio, on the, on the terrace to get a little glimpse of what might be going on outside, that something should ring inside of you saying, stay in bed. Nothing is worth what's about to happen. And look what he says at the very end of verse 2. And the woman, the woman was very beautiful in appearance. The woman was very beautiful in appearance. She looked beautiful. Not that she was beautiful. It says that she looked beautiful. She was pretty on the outside, absolutely, no question about it. The skin and the makeup and the fatty tissues that covered her fragile skeleton and muscles looked sweet. 
but her soul and her innermost being, that part of her David couldn't see and David didn't care to see it. He just saw the skin. I put it this way, because there is no doubt, 100% certain, listen, that God made things very beautiful. God wrapped some skeletons among us in very beautiful ways. And that certain external, physical, exceptionally wondrous skin tissue doesn't even begin to tell the story of the whole person, does it? Not even a little bit. Just on a side point here, do you remember that one C.S. Lewis quote about what people really are, if you only knew what people really are? If you even had but a moment's glimpse into what they really are, outside of the externals, outside of what you see, that you would be blown away at who you're talking to? Let me, let me recite this to you. It's from a book called The Weight of Glory. The Weight of Glory, he says this. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses to remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror and corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another. All friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is with immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Now, that quote, flawed as it might be theologically in certain places, points to something that I think we don't ever think about, rarely if ever, especially in moments of temptation. We are tempted to see others that really can only be seen as illusionary. We are tempted to see this world in ways that are false and superficial and deceitful. We're tempted to consider the part and not the whole. And I say that because what you see in another person is either much more glorious than you could ever comprehend or it's much more hideous than you would ever want to discover. Yes, Bathsheba was beautiful in appearance. But that beauty did not account for the fact that she would lie with her king while her husband was away. That beauty did not account for the fact that she would allow herself to be known by others as the mistress of the king. The utter shame of a good man and a faithful soldier of her husband was none of her concern. Her beauty didn't account for the fact that what seemed beautiful on the outside was disgusting and dying and filthy on the inside. 
And that's not to say, please don't get me wrong, that Bathsheba was fully to blame for what happened because she was not fully to blame. Bathsheba did have some redeeming qualities because we know that because she repented and she changed and she became a good mother and a devoted helpmate and a tool in the Lord's hand, even to the point where she is in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ, though only by the title, the wife of Uriah, not by the name Bathsheba. So I just put this out there as a warning to everyone. Regardless of your age, regardless of your station in life, regardless of your physical attractiveness or not, things are not always what they seem. There is more to the eye than just what you see, that not only can you not judge a book by its cover, but you cannot judge or evaluate a car by its paint job. You can't judge a man or a woman's beauty by their appearance, and you can't judge their wickedness by their externals either. Here's the key. When you are tempted by lusting for sin, when you are tempted by something that you could never truly understand the depth of, unless reality is you train yourself to see the situation through the the eyes of God and not through the eyes of godliness. You need to train yourself to see things rightly. Yes, she was beautiful in appearance, but the price that he paid to explore that beauty was excruciating. She was more than a beauty with lashes and lace. She was a skeleton with skin that is wasting away. Why am I being so graphic? Because sin comes dressed beautifully. The devil himself comes in the appearance of the angel of light, not like a lizard with horns. Beauty is awe-inspiring, but beauty is fleeting. And beauty is intriguing, but beauty is what? deceitful. And when you can find beauty on the outside that matches beauty on the inside, know this, that internal beauty will continue to transform the entire being of that special one until what once was beautiful in appearance becomes even more beautiful in essence. And I know that because I live with her. Yeah, I know it's recorded, so. (laughs) All that to say that the greatest depth of despair and danger that King David ever fell into was not on the battlefield of blood, but was on the battlefield of his own mind. The battlefield of lust of the eyes and lust of the flesh and boastful pride of life. And that started the domino effect to fall until one day, Nathan arrives. So now go to 2 Samuel chapter 12. You remember from Psalm 32, part 1 and part 2, we rehearsed this portion of the scripture already. And if you weren't with us, I just encourage you to go back and read it. But for today, I'm just going to read a portion of this because it's so dramatic and it's so detailed and so vital for our time. Now, just to summarize before I read it, you remember Nathan's story, how the rich man that he speaks of, who had so much, slaughtered the baby ewe lamb of the poor man just to feed a traveler, right? You remember that story? If you didn't hear it in here, you've heard it through Sunday school your whole life. And you remember how at the climax of that story, David erupts in anger. You see it in verse 5, and he says, As Yahweh lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. And then Nathan says to David, You're the man. You are the man. 
Four words that must have struck King David through the heart and through the soul with one fell swoop. Four words. You are the man that must have felt like a burning branding iron throughout his body. Four words that are etched into the mind of every man who has ever read them to remember God is not mocked. But listen to the words of Yahweh as Nathan continues into most, almost the end of the chapter. I'm going to start reading verse 7. For this story is important for Psalm 51. Yahweh says, I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care. And I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had not been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of Yahweh by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, have taken his wife to be your wife, and you have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. So now the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says Yahweh, behold, I will rise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives from before your sight and give them to your companion and he will lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. Then Nathan said, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against Yahweh. And Nathan said to David, Yahweh also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the crimes of Yahweh to blaspheme the son also that is born to you shall surely die. And Nathan went to his house. And Yahweh smote the child that Uriah's wife bore to David so that he was very sick. David therefore sought God about the boy. And David fasted and went and spent the night lying on the ground. And the elders of his household stood behind, beside him in order to raise him up from the ground. But he was unwilling and would not eat food with them. Then it happened on the seventh day that the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was still alive, we spoke to him and he did not listen to our voice. How then can we tell him that the child has died? He might do himself harm. And David saw that his servants were whispering together, so David discerned that the child had died. So David said to his servants, Has the child died? And they said, He has died. So David rose from the ground, washed, anointed himself, changed his clothes, and he came into the house of Yahweh and worshipped. And then he came to his own house, and he asked, and they set food before him, and he ate. And his servants said to him, what is this thing that you have done? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. And then he said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept for I said, who knows? Yahweh may be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he has died. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. And then verse 24. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her 
And she gave birth to a son, and he named him Solomon. We could end there. Now, the reason I read all of that to you is because I am trying to give you the context here. Clearly, all of this event is in the superscription that I read in Psalm 51. Clearly, all of this kind of constitutes the dramatic circumstances that come before Psalm 51. But the question now is, if you're tracking with me, where? Where does this episode end and David's prayer in Psalm 51 begin? Where did David start praying Psalm 51 as the superscription tells us? It it surely has to be after David's confession to Nathan, and it has to be before his confession to God, because this is his confession to God. So when did that happen? Now remember, we chronicled, according to Psalm 32, between David's sin of adultery and murder of Uriah, that he had not confessed sin. Remember that? He had not confessed sin, and therefore David, because he had not confessed sin to either himself or to God or to Bathsheba or to anybody else, we saw in Psalm 32 that It was a reflection of what he learned from Psalm 51 and the experience of how his unconfessed sin with Bathsheba made him waste away. That's why it's important just for a second for me to go back to Psalm 32 just to read that for you really briefly, just a couple of verses, verses 5 and 6, to remind you of his physical condition. It says in Psalm 32, verses 5 and 6, I acknowledge my sin to you, And my iniquity I did not cover up. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to Yahweh, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Why is that so important? Because verses 3 and 4 tell us that while he was silent, when he did not confess his sin, his bones wasted away, he was groaning all day long, night and day, the hand of God was heavy upon him, and his vitality was drained. So we believe now that Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4, are referring to this time of nine months plus, some commentators even say a year, where David's constant refusal to his own soul to admit what was glaringly obvious was happening. For nine months, remember Bathsheba's process of childbirth, including a week of Uriah's killing, a week of mourning for Bathsheba. David said nothing. And again, there's no doubt in verses 3 and 4 of Psalm 32, that David never once bowed the knee to prayer in God in confession. He prayed, he went to God, he had to go to God, but he never once said what Psalm 51 says, against you and you only have I sinned. So every day he was avoiding his prayers, he was avoiding confession, every day he neglected the Lord, every day he represented Yahweh to the nation, yet he had not represented his heart to Yahweh. Every day he spoke to Yahweh, exalted Yahweh, but never did he confess to Yahweh. So with that thought, now in 2 Samuel 12, 13, David confesses to Nathan that he has sinned against God. And then there in verse 13, back in 2 Samuel 12, we have David actually owning up to the fact that it was sin But still there's no mention there of him confessing to Yahweh himself. Still he has not done what he speaks of having done. And so now Nathan finishes his confrontation and the text says he left the presence of the king and he went home. 
So imagine this with me. There stands David. Picture this. After having held his confession of sin to himself for almost a year, knowing that the Lord has never forgotten his sin, knowing that the Lord has sent Nathan to confront him, knowing that he's just admitted his sin to the prophet of Yahweh, of sin and adultery and murder and deception and unconfession. And now, on top of all of that, knowing that the Lord is going to allow the son, who was the product of the adultery with Bathsheba, a son who was alive and living in his home, a son whose voice he could probably hear laughing down the hall, that son was going to die. It's here that Albert Barnes, a commentator of the 19th century, makes these comments, speaking of Psalm 51, after Nathan's exit from the scene of confrontation. He writes, We may suppose that the record of his feelings was made without delay, for the psalm bears all the marks of having been composed under the deepest feeling and not of being the result of calm reflection, end quote. So if you're still with me, 2 Samuel 12, somewhere after verse 15 and before verse 20, David prayed Psalm 51. Do you see that? Somewhere between verse 15 and verse 20, David had to have prayed Psalm 51. Sometime between the time that Nathan leaves the room and the moment when the servants tell David that his son has died, somewhere in that bracket comes Psalm 51. And that time is verse 16. 2 Samuel 12, verse 16. David therefore sought God about the boy, and David fasted and went and spent the night lying on the ground. Then go to verse 18, for seven days. This psalm, Psalm 51, according to what the context teaches us, was prayed on the ground. This psalm was prayed while fasting. This psalm was a prayer to save the life of his son. Because of this, David's sin was ever before him, as he says. Because of this, David's sin came crashing home. Because of this, David's sin of taking what he wanted from Bathsheba and from Uriah and the nation of Israel is now heavy on his heart because after taking whatever he wanted from others, God is taking what he wanted from David, namely, his only son. Now, why doesn't the psalm then, Psalm 51, mention the son? There's a few different reasons, and let me just submit to you a couple The issue wasn't his son. The issue was his sin. He's not praying that the Lord would save his son. He's praying that the Lord would have mercy on his soul and therefore spare him. And I believe we're going to see a reference here in the weeks that follow that when he says in verse 5, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me, that that is a loose reference to what so many commentators are confused about as to why that shows up in this psalm. There are very many different things that are possible to drive a man or woman to their knees. Sometimes what drives you to your knees is the weight of seeing the consequences of your sin literally rob you of life 
through disease and death. Sometimes it's the weight of guilt and seeing how your sin has crushed all the financial hopes that you had. Sometimes it's the weight of watching your friends disown you and abandon you for what you have done. And for many, it's the weight of knowing that what you have done has led the ones you love down a path they never asked for because of the depth of your selfishness. And that brings a man to his knees. And to know that your lust for self-gratification, that your lust for fulfilling your most base desires, regardless of who got in your way, has caused the little one in the room down the hall to cough and wheeze and weep and die. That brought David to the floor. And that brought him not just to his knees, but to his face because he was ultimately undone. So David seeks the Lord. And he seeks the Lord concerning his son. And the result of that is Psalm 51, be gracious to me, O God. Now after this, if you are wondering where my outline is, uh, that makes two of us. <laughs> but you don't have to wonder any further because it's coming right now. Yes, we have just spent the entire time today expositing the superscription of Psalm 51, but not the psalm itself, but that part is coming. So before we get into what clearly now has become part one of a mini-series on Psalm 51, I just wanted to establish some terrain for us to follow, some topography, if you will, to navigate through that helps us to set the context here. I have broken down Psalm 51 into seven different aspects about God's person that ties together his forgiveness and man's repentance. Seven different areas about God himself that is intimately tied to David's prayer of repentance. And I give these to you now, not only because they are reflected in the verses that are going to follow, but because when the day comes when you and I must turn from our sin, when the day comes when everything you tried to gain for yourself through sin is lost and crumbles before you, When your family and your friends and your ambition and dreams all come crashing down, these seven truths that I'm about to tell you about God and repentance will guide you, as they did David, back to the journey towards God. And I'm going to give them to you now, and then we're going to repeat them in the weeks to follow. Number one, God's compassion is our only ground for petition. You're going to see that in verses 1 and 2. God's character is our primary reason for confession. You're going to see that in verses 3 and 4. God's commands are our fundamental incentive for conversion. You're going to see that in verses 5 and 6. God's chastening is our singular means for purification. You're going to see that in verses 7 and 8. God's creation is our only hope for restoration. You'll see that in verses 9 through 13. God's communion is our sole prospect for exaltation, verses 14 through 17. And number seven, God's consecration is our ongoing plea for generations. And you'll see that briefly in verses 18 and 19. And when I return to this pulpit in the weeks to follow, we're going to begin our study of these seven truths, these seven aspects of God that are ultimately tied to repentance. But until then, read Psalm 51. To yourself. 
read Psalm 51 that is so famous, even the song that was sung after the corporate prayer this morning quoted Psalm 51, created me a pure heart. But until that time, we end with this. A man named Richard Redhead wrote this in 1912 about Psalm 51. God, be merciful to me. On thy grace I rest my plea. Plenteous in compassion, thou blot out my transgressions now. Wash me, make me pure within. Cleanse, oh, cleanse me from my sin. My transgressions I confess, grief and guilt my soul oppress. I have sinned against thy grace and provoked thee to thy face. I confess thy judgment just, speechless I thy mercy trust. I am evil born in sin, thou desirest truth within. Thou alone, my Savior, art, teach thy wisdom to my heart. Make me pure, thy grace bestow. Wash me whiter than the snow. Broken, humbled to the dust by thy wrath and judgment just. Let my contrite heart rejoice and in my gladness hear thy voice. From thy sins, O hide thy face, blot them out in boundless grace. Gracious God, my heart renew, make my spirit right and true. Let's focus on that. How to focus on God and the different areas of what David mentions that would drive us toward repentance and restoration in the weeks to come. Let's pray. Almighty God, I know that even an inspired superscription can help us so much to try to understand the context of words written thousands of years ago. We see in David a man after your own heart, a man great in his own right, and yet we see a man so flawed like us, so vulnerable like us, so prone to wonder, as the hymn writer says, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. So, Father, we come to you and we just ask that you would place upon our hearts the teaching from this morning that we might see that we do not want to be driven to the point of such loss, loss of love, loss of life, loss of those that are even our own children, before that we bend the knee and bow before you and plead for your forgiveness. Let none of us live in the vacuum that says we are right with you when we are certainly wrong. And let us instead rejoice in the fact that Nathan told David the same truth that you will tell us in this psalm. You have forgiven us because we have come to you. And we thank you for that. In Christ's precious name we pray, amen.